So how's it going? I'm doing great. How about you? I'm doing well. Uh, why don't you, I, I want to talk about your new book, The Struggle for a Better World. And um, before we get going, why don't you give everybody a sense of your of your bona fides? Because you got you have all these titles and accolades, and, and you're like an important <laughs> guy in the Austrian economics world. Well, I would just say I'm a teacher of economics at George Mason University, and uh, been there since 1998, and have loved every minute of it. We get to work with some really great graduate students. Um, I don't really get a chance to teach undergraduates as much anymore, but I used to love to teach undergraduates um, and get them excited about economics. I kind of like uh, teaching principles of economics or PhD students. So you could turn the light bulb on to the principles kids. And I think that's really an important role. Um, you know, you and I were fortunate. We had a professor in college that changed our lives because of and he wasn't even like the warm and fuzzy type, right? He just not at all, like, not at all. But he he was able this Hans Senholtz was able to, you know, communicate to us what books to read. I, I always think about it as probably the most important thing that Senholtz taught me besides the core principles was who to follow up with and read. And yeah. then from them, I learned, you know, everything. And and I have always been uh, very impressed with that idea. And, I, and just one other thing, and we don't have to talk about much, but when Senholtz retired, I don't know if you remember this, but he retired after teaching at Grove City for 30 years. And Grove City is this tiny little college in western Pennsylvania, 2,000 students. And they had over 300 people former graduates of Grove City College show up at his retirement. That's an average of 10 students a year that paid their own way yeah. to go and see this guy who, again, like we said, was not like, it's not like he asked you to go have coffee with him, let alone have a beer yeah. or have any kind of casual conversation. It was just the power of the ideas. And if you look around, you know, people like Walter Grinder, who headed up IHS and you know, uh, Dick Lowry, who headed up the Scape Foundation and, you know, uh, Alex Chafwin, who's at Atlas, yourself, who's built, you know, from Freedom Works to Kibbe on Liberty and all these things. You know, he had this great overreaching impact on people to, uh, you know, make an impact on the world by teaching sound economics and the basic principles of a liberal society. So I love teaching. George Mason has been a great atmosphere for me to teach in. And that's what I like to so that's, you know, everyone else could look up other things yeah. online, but yeah. I'm a teacher of economics. And I love it. So like Senholtz, Hans Senholtz, uh, to me was sort of the Frederick Bastiat of the Austrian school because he was more at the retail end explaining yeah. the principles, although he was perfectly capable of doing serious academic work and translating Bombaugh work and that right. kind of stuff. But we were actually talking about Senholtz with uh, Ron Paul was on my show. Oh, wow. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, you probably know this story, but Ron Paul was turned on to Austrian economics by Hans Senholtz. Yes, yeah, yeah. And that's where the whole um, obsession with the, the healthy obsession with gold and the Federal Reserve yeah, came yeah. from because we certainly learned all, the, all of that at Grove City College. Yeah, yeah. I met, I met Ron Paul when I was an undergraduate student. And he seemed so old to me then. <laughs> and uh, and so then. So like 83? Yeah, yeah. 80, yeah. Yeah, like 82, 83, something like yeah. that. And so then later on, I see all these kids coming to study with me at George Mason. And they're like, what got you excited? They're like, Ron Paul, Ron Paul. And I'm like, he was really old when I was at grad school. Now you're excited about him again. But, you know, I saw him give a talk at Brazil. There's a thousand people in the auditorium. And I had to speak before him. And there's no way in hell they came to see me speak. And he just and he gave a fantastic talk. Um, he's such an energized and, and, you know, guy and he's a, you know how politicians, they just have the charisma and they know how to like work the room. Right. I mean, it's yeah. the nature of their business. And he, someone must have told him or he remembered, but he came right up to me and he said like, Hey, I remember meeting you at Grove city college or something like that. I'm sure he didn't, but you know, it was just the way he, he handled himself. But anyway, he was, he's amazing. And I can remember, you know, certain principled testimony that that he's given or testimony is not the right word but where he's been asking really tough questions about people and in the 70s and 80s around that time he was involved in a gold commission that congress was considering going back to the gold standard um you know during the early parts of the reagan administration and i, I i'm trying to remember who the guy he was with maybe it was lewis lehrman 
or something like that. But anyway, they the case for gold they put yeah. out, and yeah. so Senholtz was you know sharing that. A little funny story. I don't want to you know take away from this book because I want to talk about this book. But I have another book coming out this month with Cambridge called Money and the Rule of Law. And whenever I send it to people that have a Grove City connection, I always say I'm returning to my roots yeah. with Senholtz because when I came out of undergraduate school, if you would ask me what my interests were, I always had an interest in socialism, but I really was interested in money because of what Senholtz, you know, had taught us. And I just never worked on on money, you know, afterwards. But then I, you know, through the years have done some papers here and there. And then I worked with some people and we did this whole book on the history of, of uh, you know, monetary theory and policy. And what does it mean to do a monetary policy if it follows the rule of law rather than discretion by political authorities? Yeah. So I, 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 I kid around and say I've returned to my Senholtz roots. Yeah. You know, I just did a, I know you're about to do, maybe you've already done it. I don't know the timing exactly, but I, I did a um, wildly popular clubhouse with Ron Paul. That's awesome. And yeah. um, I've been quoting it ever since because the I've always considered uh, the Ron Paul phenomenon was really about his authenticity. He was always the same right. guy and he was always speaking principle and he was equally willing to, to attack Republicans when they were wrong, Democrats when they were right. wrong. But he said something to me that that's relevant and this will be a nice segue to the book. He's after he would give these speeches, and his, you know, his speeches could be a lot of rage against the machine, like the, the Fed is destroying right. and redistributing wealth and hurting poor people, and, and these never-ending wars are, are killing our kids and creating enemies all over the world. But the, the young people would always come up afterwards and say, thanks for giving me hope. Right. And I'm like, I never thought about it that way. And I think the hope was, was very much tied to the authenticity because he would point to the principles of liberty as the reasonable thought out path out of this this mess that right. we're in and to me that's what your book is about it's about right. hope well i i thank you for that i i i hope that i provide that hopeful message to people i i have a chapter in there where i refer to myself as uh pessimistically optimistic uh, uh about things and and so it is all about sort of hope on uh, just to mention about ron paul and authenticity i think that's right i think the idea of being consistently uh opposed to the welfare and warfare state uh was an extremely important part of my own, uh, you know, learning coming out of the 1970s uh, when I got exposed to these ideas because we're just coming still on the heels of the Vietnam War and all the turmoil that was had to do with that when I was in high school. I mean, I wasn't really a politically conscious person in high school. That's the last thing, but it, it was always it was in the zeitgeist in some sense. And then also the idea of the stagflation and the difficulties of finding jobs and everything, which was part of the context when I went to school in the late 1970s and got exposed to these ideas. So someone who could be both anti-state across the board and offer hope for a, a radically free society. And so he was one of the first voices that had something to do with the establishment in that. And, you know, and of course, Reagan represented that as well in rhetoric, if not in, in reality, but in rhetoric, his speeches were very much full-throated defenses of a liberal capitalist society, whereas politicians prior to that, Nixon, Ford, or, or Carter, in my lifetime of being conscious about that, they, they, they apologized for the market society and for capitalism. Yeah. And so it was refreshing, actually, to have people like that come along and, and do that. And, and we're sorely in need of voices that are willing to do that today. That's for sure. You, uh, you quote a passage that I had forgotten about from Mises, and I think it's from Socialism, where he says in his own blunt and concise way, there's two options, peace yeah. or war. Yeah. And, and social cooperation and the market process is, is the way that we peacefully resolve our problems. And the only other solution is war. And yeah. war is bad yeah. across the board. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that the key issue is the age of violence versus the age of contract. And when you enter into the age of contract, you also enter into the age of absence of privilege 
not connection-based, all of these things like that. And so if you think through, I mean, one of the messages I hope, you know, people uh, take away from this is that, uh, you know, for example, Adam Smith was never uh, pro-business. He was pro-market. The book is written against the uh, vested interests of the mercantilist class. And so you have to see liberalism as an emancipation doctrine. It's an emancipation against privileged elites. So it's an emancipation from the dogma of the church, from the, you know, repression by the crown, from the violence of the sword and from the drudgery of the plow, the bondage of slavery and the vested interests of the mercantilist class. And so I think a lot of people have a really hard time trying to figure out what that would look like today because we live in a society rife with privileges throughout um, that are part of this crony system that we've evolved. And so how do we overcome all of that and get beyond the militarization of a system, beyond the cronyism of the system. And I think that requires us to have acts of imagination and of hope, as you mentioned, that there is a better way to do things than we currently are doing them. And that that would in fact eradicate, you know, the, the oppression and the poverty that yeah. people see. Yeah, that's funny that uh, I think at least three times in this book, you quote that that important passage from Hayek at the end of Intellectuals and Socialism, an essay that I recommend to everybody, where he says, what we need is a liberal utopia right. that really uh, sets a fire under people because we're always, um, as as economists, and I, most of my career has been trying to fix the uh, policy process at the margins, right? right. And you know, lots of noble experiments, uh, failures mostly, some successes, but, Hayek says, when you do that, which we're inclined to do, because we are still in a market economy for all right. of its for all of its flaws, you forget to lay out that that beautiful vision of of where we think we're going. Yeah. And to me, that's it. That is synonymous with hope. But I, I struggle all the time to explain uh, the market process. Is um, you know, I call it this this beautiful process where each of us, with our own special yeah, yeah. knowledge and abilities, is is working out something that's bigger than than we are yeah you have a a great essay i have no idea how long ago it was but it's actually tried to explain spontaneous order uh by the interactions that take place at a grateful dead concert yeah and yeah. it's a it's a it's a fantastic essay which explains the sort of the mystery of the mundane but the beauty that's all involved in that and we need more people to understand that aspects of what a free society actually would operate and how people pursue productive specialization and peaceful cooperation through exchange and that's the core idea so again you know going back to senholtz you know that's bastiat's you know, major ideas to communicate to people how it is that you can have these mutually beneficial exchange ideas. And so again, Senholtz, I think, was very instrumental in getting us both to understand and appreciate that and and then follow up and learn from that. So you can see it in things like the behavior at a Grateful Dead concert in which there's no central planner or anything like that, but yet people cooperate, distant, removed from all kinds of, you know, intimate relationships or whatever, but then they form and, you know, they have this great society going on inside of them. And I think that that vision that, you know, we're talking about there in terms of the, you know, free society and the hope that that free society has. But you hit a really good point, which is that we're, we're trained as economists, you and I. And a properly trained economist is going to look at Scarcity, constraints, choices on the margin, you know, and trade-offs. And that's unromantic to most people because yeah. there's, you know, what the way that uh, Thomas Sowell sums this up, he says, there are no solutions, there's only trade-offs. And so, you know, we're trained to think like that. And so when we think about any proposed solution, doesn't matter who's in power, but they propose a set of, of uh, policies that they think is going to eradicate a problem. And then we analyze the means and ends and see whether or not the incentives line up, whether or not the knowledge is going to be utilized um, and all of these things. And then we find them wanting all the time. And so we're raining on people's parades. That's basically what economists do. And, you know, they hate that. Right. They, they hate it with a passion because they just want if I intend to do good, then I must be doing good rather than that. The path to hell is paved with good intentions. And so we're there to, but what happens is when we teach people that 
they tend to lose the romance, yeah. right? And so yeah. you have to have the romance in there, which is the possibility that if you took into account this knowledge from economics and you design the rules the right way, you could actually have a society which self-governs itself, which which we can govern with each other rather than have our overlords, you know. And again, you know, you think about soul. Soul says there are no solutions, only trade-offs. But then the very last paragraph of his great book, Knowledge and Decisions, he says, all we need is for ordinary people to have the elbow room away from their supposed betters to be able to create a, a meaningful life for themselves. And I think this is sums up, there's so many different little things that sum up the different perspectives. But I think one of the the real ones between the progressive and the classical liberal or the modern liberal, our modern liberal, not not progressive liberals, but is that the progressives believe that extraordinary people, the elite, can do extraordinary things if only given the power to do them. And we're defenders of ordinary people. Yeah. We're like ordinary people, if given the freedom, can do extraordinary things. And the difference between those two visions about how society should be organized basically cuts down the lines and you can have, you know, people on the right side of the aisle or on the left side of the aisle that maybe flip flop on that position about who might give more power to ordinary people. But the main idea is we need to give ordinary people the freedom to be able to make better lives for themselves and the people close to them. You know, I actually use it. Uh, I, I call myself a uh, libertarian populist. And, yeah, and it's, it's very much in that context because um, I always find any form of central planning, whether it's progressive sort of nudging yeah. or, or downright sort of socialist redistribution of wealth, um, it's always dependent on this, this, this very elite group of super smart people who just know better than we do. Yeah. And to me, um, the opposite, what you're calling liberalism, which I use, I use the word libertarianism just right. so that people don't get, get, get confused. It confused. Yeah. But to me, it's fundamentally bottom up. Yep. It's fundamentally about the power of your neighbor to do something extraordinary. And, and that's, that's probably part of what we need to communicate that, that like we're having this, this grand debate today about democratic socialism. Right. And, and you, you talk about that in the book as well. And I get the attraction of democracy and I love that word. I, I love things that are radically democratized because to me it's shifting power back to, right. to people. Yeah. Um, but the struggling with that contradiction because there, there is no way that, that socialism based on any definition that you would I would understand could ever be democratic right. because it's by definition it's top down. Someone, someone smarter than you is going to tell you how to live your life. Yeah. Well, you've been a forerunner in celebrating the democratization of knowledge. I mean, this is part of the, the movement that you've been involved with for 10, 15 years now, or maybe more, where, you know, rather than the establishment way in which we've approached this. So if you think about where did libertarianism go wrong, I think there's a couple reasons for that. One of them is in our culture. Uh, one of them is, I think, that after uh, 1989, um, many of the people thought we had won the battle of ideas. And so therefore they focused all their efforts on politics and they forgot that politics is downstream from culture. And if you, if you cede culture to other people, eventually your politics is going to be lost. And so I think that's one of them. The other one is that precisely because the way the progressives had approached the training of the intellectual elite to be able to then infiltrate you know, this cultural zeitgeist and then also then the policy, we tried to mimic it. Yeah. But we're trying to mimic it for a vision of society which doesn't need those trained elites the way that you're talking about. And um, I think you're one of the ones who first, you know, sort of pointed that out and mentioned things like, you know, this uh, bringing it to the people. I mean, that's the whole point of freedom works in many ways, right? Yeah. It was to, you know, sidestep the sort of idea. I'm part of this world which was trying to influence academia and the academic and scientific culture. And we were all trained to be the same way that the Social Science Research Council tried to handle it when they were trying to get the progressives in charge of everything. So we're just going to reverse engineer it, you know, for classical liberal perspectives. And there's huge tensions involved in that. So that's that's the first thing. My colleague Tyler Cowan, I think, was sort of a little, uh, you know, on board with you in the sense that he understood that the blogging and the, you know, podcasts and everything was an alternative 
intellectual culture, which was tearing down these old institutions. The question is, is whether or not we can, you know, tear down those institutions and have the other institutions replace them that are robust. And I think at the moment, what we have is just a battling of, of those old institutions still going on. And so what they mean by democratic socialism and, you know, when you push people, they'll they'll say, oh, I only mean Denmark or I only mean Sweden or whatever. But they don't really know what's going on in Denmark or Sweden. And if you go back to the 1930s, the same kind of arguments were being made and they even used the term democratic socialism. I mean, when Hayek was arguing with his colleagues at the LSE, they didn't want to have the Soviet Union. I mean, we sometimes think about like, you know, the webs, you know, talking about how great the Soviet Union was. But, you know, like Abel Lerner and, and, and Durbin and uh, Dickinson and these people who were the main like kind of colleagues at LSE, they didn't want the Soviet Union. You know, they knew that Soviet Union was a totalitarian nightmare or whatever. But they said democratic socialism. And they would say to Hayek, we are socialists in our economics because we are liberal in our politics. And they were worried about the same thing that you hear today. Moneyed interests dominating, needed to be, you know, uh, sort of eradicated and whatnot. But the problem that Hayek was trying to say is, OK, wait a minute. That's cool. I agree with your goal. We want to get to a non-privileged society. But the very means that you're adopting is going to make privileges look far worse than anything that we're envisioning here. And that's exactly what happened. And so this is this is where we're at again. It's kind of like, you know, I could be accused of a lot of things, uh, my myopia and everything. But, you know, given the fact and it's not in this book because I didn't bring up, but my, my formative training was all on studying totalitarian societies. And so I'm very attuned to when there's potential for totalitarianism again. And I think one of the more, if I, if I was to write the book today, I would, I would have uh, emphasized Hayek's chapter in The Road to Serfdom called The End of Truth, because I think that really does capture a lot of the parallels to what's going on today. And and especially since, you know, the pandemic and everything hit in this issue of, of moving us away from reasonable discourse is a crucial part of, of trying to, to do this. Yeah, like um, uh, Phil Magnus calls it Fauchism. And, and I sort of like the term because it's, it's very much in line with Hayek's uh, understanding of the abuse of science and and it's become a religion now. They actually sell those little yeah, ca yeah. Catholic candles with Fauci's face <laughs> on it. Yeah, yeah. Um, I have one with Jerry Garcia, which is a totally appropriate <laughs> thing. But the, yeah. it, it destroys any understanding of science itself as a discovery process, right. an iterative uh, argument about, right. about um, getting to the truth. But this, this phrase, the science is settled, is the most anti-science yeah, it's horrible. I yeah. mean, science is an evolving process. You know, I've never met Fauci. I have no idea. You know, he's he's a, um, you know, obviously he's a very talented person in terms of the science of bureaucracy, you know, the scientific bureaucracy in the United States. You know, if you go back and you look at the book and the band played on, which is by Gary Schultz, it's about the discovery of the AIDS virus. Fantastic uh, investigative journalism. You know, Fauci is a bad guy in that book because he was an author. Of and a, he's had his same job yeah. going all the way so back he was to a, Carter, I think. Yeah, yeah. and he, 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 you know, he was an author of a study that claimed that um, HIV could spread through ordinary household use, like sitting on a toilet and things yeah. like that. And, you know, I mean, it's, it's hard for young people and older people forget, but you just got to look up names like Ryan White and other, you know, young people that were so adversely affected by the scare tactics around HIV when we were in college in the, and then right after college in the early 80s. And to remember how difficult, you know, public health issues are. So I don't, you know, look, he's a, he's, he, you know, he's a public health official. He's, you know, been on a lot of studies and, you know, he's well credentialed and everything. But here's the deal is that we know that scientific bureaucracies face incentives in the same way that all other bureaucracies face. And so, you know, one of the things that that uh, they face is that they're going to make sure that they bias the system towards making sure that they always are going to, uh, you know, reject a drug, right, that, um, you know, should be rejected. 
And as a result, that bias means that they don't accept drugs that should have been accepted. And so this is played out in all of our stuff about our, you know, our vaccines and everything like that, plus other treatments is because they're biased in that way. And the media is biased as well in the way that they record and discuss things. And so precisely because we've had nothing but a certain, you know, and, and we've centralized more and more what public health is with the with the World Health Organization and everything like that. And so I'm not. I'm not saying that they don't have a legitimate point of view, but we don't have a reasonable debate. Yeah. We didn't have enough alternative discussions or discussions of the trade-offs. So right from the beginning, you know, back a year ago, this date, you know, we were in the United States, we were really sold on the University of Washington model, which came from the Oxford model and translated over here. And that became the our discourse thing, not talking to Stanford people and other, you know, people that were outliers. They were pushed to the corners. And I understand that. I mean, that happens in all debates about, you know, monetary policy or fiscal policy. And this happened here. But to me, I think it was a it was a significant issue because we took a, a health question and we made it into this big, hairy externality. So that's a public health crisis. And we, you know, used various techniques of social control to try to make, make sure people's behavior and to a large extent, you know, we've we've marched in lockstep of that. Young people are more scared about the disease related to maybe their parents or grandparents or whatever than the elderly are. Um, and the and 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 this whole episode um, and the attitudes that people have towards it leads to what they call the Great Reset. And that Great Great Reset is giving a much more space to socialist ideas. Than even war did, yeah, yeah, <laughs> and it, 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 because it's writ large across the idea that the government can decide who's essential and who's not is different than even when we were talking about like trying to have fight back terrorism or something. So mm -hmm. this was even bigger than terrorism, um, in the sense of having us scared and feel that the government should have the authority to make those kind of decisions. And you see pockets of resistance. Yeah. But they're pushed to the corners of people rather than, you know, like gym owners in New, in New Jersey or something. And they're they're viewed as heretics rather than as le people who have legitimate beefs. There was um, that whole, um, you know, early on in the first days of the pandemic um, and everybody's freaking out because it's it's radical uncertainty. And and one of the, one of the things I talk about a lot when when I'm uh, teaching young people how to deal with um public policy situations when you don't know anything about anything. Right. Um, and to me, that's that's the moment when sort of the Aust Austrian method shines because Austrian economists understand the world as, as a process going through time so that you have some understanding about what happened yesterday, but you really don't know what's going to happen right. tomorrow. And here we have this new variant of this this virus and and people and you know people that are supposed to know these things are telling us this is the big one this right. is this is going to be devastating to me that's precisely the moment that you, that you need decentralized knowledge right. yep. and you need multiple um, approaches to this problem based on local circumstances and you talk about that in your introduction and yeah. and that you wrote that about a year ago and it still stands up if we yeah. had had a less centralized approach i think we'd be in a much better situation so i um, I have a paper coming out with a law journal at Georgetown. Um, I don't know exactly when, but it's it's called Liberalism Tested. And what I did was I tried to do the run the thought experiment from Mills on Liberty, his harm principle, and say, okay, so a liberal society is confronted with a global a, a pandemic. So it's a massive you know externality. So I used all the language that's being used, right? Yeah. And I said, then how would a liberal society cope with it? Because what we've done is we've tried to use emergency measures to say we have to suspend a liberal government in order to save liberalism. Like, that's the idea. But the problem with emergency measures that economists like Hayek and Friedman and Buchanan and Robert Higgs and others people have pointed out is that there's nothing as permanent as a temporary government policy. And so you make these emergency you know, concessions, and then you never come all the way back to the liberal society. So I, I wanted to ask the question, how would a, a liberal society handle a pandemic? It doesn't 
engage in a Jedi mind trick, right? You don't sit there and say, there is no pandemic, right? right. That's not the way it does it. It recognizes it and it pushes the decision authority back down to like as far as we can to the level of the individual to make those those decisions or to the community or whatever, far removed from the federal government making it, we push it down. And the reason is, is because of entrepreneurship, what you're talking about. We want to have people be able to engage in entrepreneurship to have mitigation strategies. We want people to engage in entrepreneurship to come up with the therapeutics that be able to like minimize the risk of hospitalization or minimize the risk of severe, uh, you know, uh, 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 illness or whatever. And we want entrepreneurship to be driving, you know, the the uh, technologies that will, in fact, eradicate the disease. And so it's all about pushing it down to that level and promoting creativity and alertness to the opportunities. And one of the things that putting an economy into s suspended animation does is it cuts down that notion. So if invention, you know, if, if, if necessity is the mother of invention, by eliminating the necessity to adapt and adjust, we have lost out on very important learning points. Um, and, and we should, that should be part of the conversation. It doesn't mean that it's an, again, an answer to everything. It just means that, you know, we should have been talking about that. What would be the mitigation strategies? What was this? And by in determining instead that this is essential, this is non-essential, non-essential shutdown, this is essential, it has to go on. That just sort of stopped that whole learning process that you're talking about, or at least, uh, you know, sort of uh, stultified it, uh, you know, didn't didn't make it, you know. And, and so in the midst of this pandemic, so I read Matt Ridley's book on how innovation works with if, if your listeners um, haven't read it, I highly, highly recommend it. But he has a great line in it. He says that innovation is the child of freedom and the parent of prosperity. And I want everyone to let that sink in. You know, it's a great line, great you know phrase that he has. Uh, the, it's the child of freedom and the parent of prosperity. Well, what happens when you're curtailed of freedom? What you do is you don't give birth to the innovation. Yeah. And, and even though we continue to stumble and find different things, we're not getting the same innovative force that you would hope that we would get because we only think of innovation as response, as responding from top-down initiatives. So moonshots, you know, there's a new book coming out called The Mission Economy. Yeah, yeah. And only need moonshots to be able to do things. Well, that's not, that. that's the opposite of what we were talking about earlier. That's extraordinary people can do extraordinary things if you just give them the power and the resources to do it. And we're talking about ordinary people can do extraordinary things if they're just given the freedom. And if, if if you just think about that and think about where the source and energy of modern economic growth comes from and the great miracle of the modern economy, it doesn't come from moonshots. It comes from ordinary people, you know, discovering ways to improve their lives and the lives of their families that have huge impact for all of us. And so this is what I think we need to get back and, and communicate to young people. They need to have that scope for them to be able to spread their wings not to have someone telling them, you know, this is safe or this is unsafe yeah. and only pursue the safe. We need to go back again where we, you know, have permissionless innovation. You know, if we if we went by the precautionary principle for our innovations, we'd still be in a horse and buggy. We wouldn't have we wouldn't have had the car or whatever. And, and we need to think about those things because this is what's really going to hurt us if we don't get out of our own way. You know, I, I'm, I'm going to butcher this story because uh, Matt Ridley was on the show and we were talking about vaccinations and he's got a chapter in there. I think it's about smallpox and and the, the woman that discovered that, I might be confusing um, epidemics, but um, she was not the head of whatever the health right. agency was. They yeah. probably didn't even have a health agency. And she, she was, it was local, bottom-up right. knowledge, experimentation, risk-taking. Um, she was highly demonized, as I recall, as, as a crazy woman. And then she ended up saving millions and millions of yeah. lives. Yeah, I'm not sure I know the smallpox story, but I do know the story about the 56 uh, uh, flu. And uh, the guy was at Merck. He wasn't working for a government agency. He was private company Merck Chemical, and he noticed the the, the pattern of the virus, and he wrote over to 
the origins were in Hong Kong. So he wrote that the people in Hong Kong got the, the sequencing of the virus and he skipped through everything. Of course, the FDA wasn't as regulated as it is today and, and whatnot, but they were able to have that, that vaccine available before the kids started school in the fall. Right. And so that's from January to like, uh, you know, it's a pretty amazing story. Uh, and at the same time, you know, uh, we were a poor society, um, so therefore we didn't have the same uh, ability or wherewithal to burn up the accumulated uh, surplus fund of capital accumulation that we have now. Um, and uh, so, you know, things didn't stop the way that they are now. And we moved on. And, and I was just listening this morning. I, I'm one of my favorite podcasts is a podcast called Hidden Brain. Um, and... Uh, this this week's episode, um, they have a, a person talking about the 1918 uh, pandemic and the way in which it was treated by historians. And what this author is doing is trying to capture it by looking at things like literature and blues songs and things like that, because it didn't get captured in the history because it got swallowed up by World War One. Right. So it, yeah. it, it, it didn't have its own that much of its own separate history because mm -hmm. world war one over, you know, superseded Change, the narrative. Yeah. yeah. And changed the narrative. Whereas it actually is in these literature poems, songs. And so she was playing those. It was really fascinating. And I keep on wondering, like, you know, how are we going to tell our story, you know, down the road? And, uh, I've become, I've become quite attuned to this. It's a stupid reason for this. Uh, and it's amazing how things, you know, I studied Austrian economics my entire adult life, read Hayek, you know, Mises, you know, Rothbard, Kersner, all these different people, Lachman. And I know that the way that we look at the world through our eyeglasses is going to dictate, you know, so we need to have our theory to be able to do that. But when I was watching the, the, um, the musical Hamilton and the very last scene, you know, when uh, they get to the very end of it and they talk about who will write your story. And then, you know, his wife comes in and says, I'll write his story. And then she emphasizes all the things she wants to emphasize. And like, it really made a big impact on me about how important it is who the storyteller is. Mm -hmm. And I think it so much of our future is going to dictate on who gets to tell this story. Because if it gets told the story that we had to have a savior, that was extraordinary to be able to do it rather than that we found our way out of it, then that's going to dictate how we'll respond to the next thing. And so I think that that it's really important right now to be resting control of the narrative um, and at least competing in that narrative. And that requires that we do our homework, we get the facts, we study what's going on, but we make sure that that narrative's out there. And in the book, I refer to this in, in you know, in, in terms of basically you know, what does it mean to have a self-governing democratic society and what that would look like for people as a vision, as opposed to this idea that, hey, socialism is a good opportunity for the young people to be able to get universal basic income or a single payer system. And or, you know, think about all the policy issues that go with it. And we are in a very tough situation right now. We have a society that's confront it with injustice. We have a society that's confronted with fear and we have a society that's been militarized. And so how does the libertarian communicate in that world of a world that's not militarized, that doesn't live in fear, uh, that is one about opportunity and hope, as you said. And I think that's what we really have to focus on. Yeah. Like we, we've been picking on Fauci, but you have a chapter in here where you pick on the idea of an economist, the science of economics being treated as that savior that can come in sure. and reorganize yeah. things. And I guess, I guess Keynes started the tradition of, of sort of parachuting in and says, I got it all figured out, guys, yeah. well, and I think just do what I say. I think, I think there was others before him, but they weren't necessarily viewed as, as you know, legitimate people, right? And, and, and he had the big charisma. He had the, the big charisma and he was the one who did it, but it's, it is fascinating. But Keynes is the, 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 you know, these are kind of funny things, but the, the second volume of Skidelsky's biography in Keynes is called The Economist as Savior. And Hayek in his Nobel Prize address constantly refers to as economists proper role as students. 
Yeah. And I play off of that theme a lot, that it's we're students of civilization. We're not saviors of civilization and that economists need to be taken down a peg or two from their idea. Now, by the way, that I have an earlier book on public governance from a classical liberal point of view. And we go through and, you know, I mean, you've been involved in Washington, D.C. for for a long, long time, you know, 30 years now. And so much of what the progressive establishment was to was to develop these independent regulatory agencies that are immune from any democratic process. They're permanent bureaucracies and everything like that. Those are the last things that a democratic liberal society yeah, that, that was the progressive project. That, that was, was like... exactly. And, and, and if you go back and read, you know, uh, the promise of American life by Herbert Crawley, which was the Bible for all of these guys, their basic idea is like, look, Jeffersonianism, we got to like get rid of it. We got to transform our society completely from that. And we forget that at our own peril, because this is this whole, when you go, you know, on the way to your house today, I'm walking, going down Constitution Avenue, and I'm just seeing the the laundry list of all of this progressive. These are progressive monuments. These right. are monuments that are progressive, progressive, uh, you know, uh, elite. And, you know, look, I mean, I, I'm an academic. I've benefited from this position. So I'm, you know, the, the last one in some sense to. But at the same time, I think this is one of the reasons why we're on this precipice of either going in a bad way or a good way is whether or not we're going to be able to overcome, you know, the legacy of that idea. And we've gone, I had so much more hope prior to 9-11. You know, think about our lifetime, right? Yeah. So we have, we overcome the Keynesian hegemony in the 1970s with the 80s. Then you have the the, the collapse of communism. You have also in Sweden and the, and the Nordic countries all reforming their economies towards more free market. You start to, uh, laying this out in the Economic Freedom Index, and you can see all these different countries. And then, boom, 9-11 happens. Then, right. boom, the financial crisis happens. And then, boom, you know, COVID happens. And we're, like, gone all the way back to where we were in the 1970s in terms of the intellectual culture again. The three, that by the way, the three big freakouts. Yeah. Where where otherwise rational people sort of took a dive and said, "Well, I guess we have to give up our liberties for X." Yeah. Yeah. It's a it's it, a uh, devastating. Devastating. Yeah. Um the uh it's it's a very um it's very sobering to think about that. But again, I, I, you know, I take, I take, uh, you know, uh, uh, my attitude from Julian Simon and, you know, the idea is that, that people are the ultimate resource and yeah. their imaginations. And so if you can imagine that there's tailwinds and headwinds, all of the stuff we're talking about is the headwinds that are pushing against it. But on the other hand, we have these great tailwinds, which come from reside, reside in the ordinary people. Yeah. And all they have to have is a little bit of freedom and, and things will happen that none of us can imagine will happen, you know, and, and it will just go. And, and so we just got to give scope for that freedom to go forward. That's my hope. I mean, yeah. that's my hope. And, and so, you know, you mentioned hope in the book. I play on this idea of the four pillars of economics and these four pillars, they'll, they'll you'll you'll relate to them because they relate back to our education you know, all the way back at Grove City. So the first one is that economics by stressing scarcity, um, you know, what that does is it, it brings us truth, right? And, and it's, it's sort of, you know, the truth of how the world works, you know, and, and all that. And then the second aspect of it is beauty, right? Awe and beauty. And that's like, you're like witnessing what goes on in the, in the Grateful Dead concert or Paris gets fed or, you know, just the beautifulness of the spontaneous order that you were talking about. And then, you know, the, the third one, right, is this idea that we can have, you know, this, this sort of hope through entrepreneurship and change and, 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 and whatnot. And then the fourth one is compassion, right, which is because all economics, when it's done right, wants to lift the least advantage in society up. It's not about privileging the most elite. It's about helping the least advantage to rise up through opportunity and, and all of this. And so when I think about these issues that are going on in our cities and, and, and issues like that. So for example, this tragedy that just happened in Chicago with the 13 year old, and now, you know, they're having conversations, not just about, you know, the cops, but the fact that a 13 year old was already being sucked into the gang life. And, you know, and, and or at least potentially that might be what's part of the story. And 
so what are the opportunities? Well, there's an old book by William Julius Wilson called What Happens When Work Disappears. Well, what happens when work disappears is that actually, you know, the jobs go away, the opportunities, the only way in which you can then find a space is somewhere else, which maybe not be the most healthy way to go. So there's a guy today on NPR and he's leading one of the nonprofits there and he's telling a story. You know, he's he's very much wants justice for the family, for the community and everything like that. But he was also telling a story about when he was a teenager and, and he was starting to get involved with with, uh, you know, the gangs, what happened was his mother worked with a local grocery store and got her kid a job at 14. And then he started working. He said, I wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for the fact that I had that job because then I had, you know, I had an alternative way out. And so I think we have to recognize what the opportunity society offers people and that we have to recognize that work has dignity to it and, and all of these things. And we need to make those arguments again so that people understand. And work's not something to run away from. Work's something that you make something out of yourself from it. And so, yeah. So That's, anyway. that's kind of, I mean, that's kind of the core of the debate. And I, I talk about this a lot because AOC is constantly talking about economic dignity. Yeah. And um, I I want to sort of parse the the the. the the title of your book, "The Struggle for a Better World," because it's it's loaded with with some really three important words: struggle, better world. Yeah. And the the struggle to me um, has to do with work. It has to do with with striving and failing and being really uncertain about whether or not you're going to succeed. Yeah. And that's 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 sort of part of the the way that Austrians understand the world. But it's also like you think about the pandemic and young people not getting jobs or, or young people getting stuck in the drug war and then ending up in, in prison and, yeah. and you get that recidivism that strips you of your dignity. If you if you don't have a way to better yourself. Um, so I I, yeah. I think that's that's part of our beautiful vision of the future is like we have we have to not just defend work, but the the, the ability to just define yourself. Yeah, no, I agree with you 100 percent. I think that um, and and and, you know, making mistakes is part of growing up, too. And one of the biggest problems nowadays is that some people, when they make mistakes, they don't get a second chance. Yeah. And, you know, and that's the system is screwed up that way. And that needs to be addressed. And it's it's a very bad, you know, uh, aspect of it, the whole recidivism and, and other kind of issues. So I, I wrote a bunch of studies on community policing, which tries to address some of these issues as well. And we talk a little bit about it here. And then in that other book I told you about with the, um, you know, the uh, um, uh, public governance and classical liberal perspective. But I think that your uh, point that you're making about people being able to be architects of their own life, and I think this is a, a real philosophical aspect of our current culture, which has caused a problem, which is the idea that it's all a matter of luck or of privilege rather than the idea that you're an or architect of your own life. And, you know, when you and I were younger, we were both, you know, influenced to a large extent by, you know, reading Ayn Rand and other people who stress this issue of that you are the architect of your own life. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, I really hope that young people find somebody that they can find that in as well, because that's crucial. And the philosophical culture, you know, Michael Sandel's book against meritocracy and other kind of things like that is all cutting against that at the moment. And, you know, uh, I listen to, uh, you know, the congresswoman and, you know, she, she sometimes can be absolutely brilliant. I right. mean, when she talked about crony capitalism up on the hill when she first got in before the pandemic and everything, I mean, you could have you could have been there and saying the same thing. It was brilliant the way she walked through and talked about all that stuff like that. And so I share with her 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 compassion and concerns with so much of the injustice uh, that goes on. I just think she has the wrong answers. Right. Right. And so how do I have a reasonable conversation? Yeah, Bernie's the same way on a lot of this exactly. stuff. Exactly. But how do I have a reasonable conversation in this day and age with people? And so part of the issue that I get to in the conclusion of the book is I try to talk about the importance of civility in discourse as well. But in order to have civility in discourse, we're also going to have to have freedom in our discourse. And, you know, the more we try to shut people up, 
rather than engage with them, we're going to have difficulties with all this. So there's so much that's embedded in all of the the the, the discourse that needs to be fixed. And, and, you know, for your audience, you know, I again, I think one of the most important passages in Bastiat is his his warning. He says, uh, never uh, fear an artful criticism, but always fear an inept defense. And I think a lot of libertarians, because they thought that, you know, after nine, after, you know, 1989, communism was defeated. Therefore, it's all about politics. They seeded culture and politics is downstream from culture. And they seeded that whole like all of that conversation. And what we need to do is we need to be what you're doing. You know, you're you're in, you're part of the intellectual culture. You're broadening that culture. You're reaching out. You're you're you know, we need to be part of that again and giving people an idea of the power that resides in ordinary people. Yeah. And I'm like it's I'm kind of trying to do what Leonard Reed did. But but in some ways we have such better tools today. Yeah. We don't have to publish the Freeman yeah. and hope that it ends up in somebody's mailbox and hope that they open right. it up and read it. Um, we have these these more democratic Tools it's amazing. Yeah. with all of the censorship and the speech police and all we the stuff we them. deal with. Yeah. It's... Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I, you know, I, I was, I was, uh, saw Leonard Reed, you know, when I was a kid and I'll never forget it, how powerful that, that lamp story, you know, yeah. so if you can go online, you can watch the video of it. But again, you know, he was doing that in a front of a room of at most a hundred people at most, right. Right. Most of the time it was in front of 20 people or whatever. You're able to do a YouTube video and basically do the same thing. But in, fr in front of, you know, thousands of people at a, at a, at a shot. So it is amazing uh, what has happened in terms of reach and being able to get, you know, um, but we need to focus on that again. I mean, we, we, you know, that's that's my hope. So when I, I sat down to do this book, it's a collection of my speeches through the years that I was given a chance to do many of them on Mont Pelerin Society, but several of these other organizations that I've been involved in. And we tried to find a theme to which to bring them together. And then I bookended it with a new introduction and a new conclusion. And, you know, I came up with the title, A Struggle for a Better World, because I realized that, you know, in my efforts, um, like Senholtz, <laughs> uh, in my efforts is, is a, um, you know, in these lectures, I am puzzling and struggling and trying to figure out what the hell's going on, just like anyone else. So that's a struggle. But I'm also trying to get people excited about joining the struggle to change the world for yeah. a better world, because for the 20 years of which this has 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 been part of, basically, you know, it's not perfectly fit, but you got 9-11. And after 9-11, you know, in many ways, all of the optimism of the pre 9-11 period had kind of faded. I mean, it was already starting to fade because there was tensions in the post-communist period. There was tensions with the anti-globalization movement. Those all precede the 9-11. But once 9-11 hit, you know, fear comes to dominate. And that means that all bets are off in terms of the way that we think about the sound monetary policy you know, fiscal responsibility. Well, those things also feed into like why it is that we had the financial crisis. I mean, it, you can't decouple those things as much as people want because we had eight years of, of why it is that we were doing what we were doing and then steered in a certain way by policy. And then in response to the financial crisis put us in a particular, you know, situation that, you know, made responding to this crisis you know, that much more complicated. And now the way we're responding to it and what the legacy of that is going to be. And so, you know, we, we, we have, we have ideas back on the table, like modern monetary theory, you know, which are older ideas, but now resurrected again in new form. We have democratic socialism, older idea now resurrected in new form. So we have a lot of anti-immigration ideas from left and right. Remember, you know, Bernie's not so great on immigration either, right? He's, he's kind of the mirror image of Donald Trump. Yeah. And so I, li I like your idea of libertarian populism. I write against populism in the book, but what I mean by it is right-wing and sure. left-wing authoritarian populism. But I do like the idea that, that, you know, the final consumer of knowledge is people, not the elites. And so you want the, to... to filter through to reach the, the the everyday people we what matters is the everyday life 
of individuals, that's where we find meaning. That's where we live in our communities. That's, you know, people talk about, oh, community needs to be important. Yes, we need to have a society of free and responsible individuals who can participate in a market economy and assure well-being for their families and themselves and live in caring and help create caring communities. That's that's what a that's the vision that people want, not atomism, not collectivism. You know, those are the extremes that we don't want. We want to be be engaged but also be able to like have elbow room for ourselves and what our own aspirations are. Yeah, it strikes me that, um, and and going back to your title, that I want to, I'm going to start trying to rehabilitate the word struggle because um, it seems like what what Hayek is yeah. is fighting against is is this idea that that we have to let our fears about the future like cripple us and, yeah. and prevent us from struggling forward but to me like it, it's a struggle it's 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 like a journey um i'm going to quote um neil pert from yeah. from rush the, the point of the journey is not to arrive yeah and and that to me is is the utopian vision like this this is a beautiful journey like we don't know what's going to happen um we're not going to get everything we want and and we're going to have setbacks and some of them will be our own fault and others will not be our fault at all but um you should embrace that that process yeah. of moving forward in the future, and to me, that is more attractive yeah. than this safetyism where we're gonna we're gonna cower in fear and and wait for some politician yeah. like AOC to write legislation to save us. Save us, yeah. I, I, look, one of my favorite chapters in Hayek uh, is uh, the you know the creative powers of a free civilization. And part of the whole thing in that in that chapter is emphasizing the idea that we want freedom, uh, not because we know what it will give us, but precisely because we don't know what we're going to get from it. And that might be just miraculous what we're going to get from it. And I think this idea of what you were talking about with uncertainty earlier, you know, the Austrian school of economics from Menger onwards has always been about the idea that economic activity takes place in time that economic activity is driven by the subjective expectations and valuations of individuals, and that we come up with various institutions for us to cope with our radical uncertainty. It's not to deny that there is radical uncertainty. It's that we have various different mechanisms for which we cope and deal with our ignorance and our uncertainty. And it's in that that we see so many creative activities. So I always think that the way we should think about economics is that we have to give priority in our economic explanations to the clever and creative actors inside of our theories. And I think this is one of the key things in Hayek's scientific method, which is to say not that, um, so his knowledge assumption is that the theorist can never know what the creative and clever actors in the economy actually know. So we can understand the principle but we can't know the particulars that are going to be acted upon. That has to require those individuals with their contextual knowledge. with their. And so when I'm trying to struggle and think about the political economy of these ideas, I want to give priority to those clever and creative individuals to be able to find solutions that no one from afar could ever you know, uh, you know, envision in their own head. And so when we go back to the application period, like what you're talking about in a tense situation like we've had here, you know, what we need to do is we need to unleash the creative powers of all these individuals throughout the economy to figure out ways in which they can mitigate and live and find their own trade-off between safety and freedom and power them to do it rather than the idea that someone, you know, standing behind a microphone at a congressional hearing can say, you know, be a school marm and say, you know, no, 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 you can't do this or whatever. And we got to get beyond that. It's like a humble utopianism. Yes. That's yeah, because you're giving the power back to all the people. Yeah. So it's actually like a weirdly hippie thing too, right? Because it's like give it all always the comes back to the grateful death. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Give power to the people. Right. Entrust the entrust the people. That's where all the this this uh you know creative energy lies. It doesn't lie in these, you know, magnificent buildings that line this city or the people who have all the fancy degrees, you know, behind their names that occupy, you know, these these places. Yes, they're smart people. I get it. But, you know, the ordinary individual has, you know, greater uh, scope for understanding the way the world works. You know, I yeah. mean, just in, in, in thinking about this, 
So again, you know, not endorsing any of the positions. There's a disease. I'm 61 years old. I'm overweight. So I've been, I was risk averse because I read the data, you know, from the beginning. So I'm an academic, so I can shelter at home. I'm an academic. So my temperament is to shelter at home. I, you know, I'm a, I'm a high functioning, you know, uh, basically, uh, you know, uh, um, introvert, uh, you know, introvert, because I love to spend time where no one's around me reading books all day long and writing without anyone interrupting me. So I'm built in many ways for this or whatever, but I'm listening to Joe Rogan early on on a podcast. And he's like, where are people talking about exercise, vitamin D, you know, improving your immune system and all those things like that. Now, you know, Joe Rogan said it. So some people heard it, they got it, you know, and everything like that. But that was not the messaging that you heard from the CDC, but it should have been right. like, it should have been like, okay, listen, yeah, there's all kinds of risks. You need to do this. And while you're at it, you know, take some more vitamin D, you know, get out there and walk yeah, for every God's day. For God's sakes, miles. go outside. Yeah, yeah. Walk two miles, not necessarily with a mask on because yeah. you're not within, you know, within anyone and go out there, walk, you know, pick up an exercise routine, do that, get eight hours of sleep every night, you know, that kind of thing. You know, um, there's all kinds of ways that, that ordinary people and common sense wisdom out distances ruled by the experts. Yeah. And we should always remember that. And not be surprised when it happens that way. And the experts generate expert failure, especially when they're given monopoly expertise. I'm not against experts. I'm against monopoly expertise. I want contestation between the experts all the time. Yes. Uh, so we just pulled a Ron Paul and name dropped a lot of economists. Oh. And it, it, it strikes me that uh, Mercatus and the Hayek Center, um, there's a great resource there for people that want to check these things out. I was actually on your, I guess it was your YouTube page, watching Hayek's last lecture at George Mason yeah, University. Amazing. I, I was yeah, pissed yeah. because I showed up like six months later. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so give us, give us, uh, give us some of those resources and tell us where we can get the struggle for a better world. Oh, fantastic. Thank you. Uh, so first of all, you can get the book on Amazon as an ebook for roughly $10, which is great. And then you can get it in a paperback, I think for under 20. So this is one of my better priced academic books because yeah, some, of my other book books, I can't afford. <laughs> some of the other books are a little too expensive. But uh, this is a very, uh, very uh, reasonably priced book. Um, there is a web page for it at Mercatus, and there's also a little video promotional for it. Um, but Mercatus as a whole has, uh, so I direct the F.A. Hayek uh, program for advanced study in philosophy, politics, and economics. I understand that's a big, many uh, words, but you just look up Mercatus PPE. Because that's really what it's about. It's philosophy, politics, and economics. It's really political economy and social philosophy, which we're doing. And so for libertarians, it fits right into what they're doing. And you can see research. My colleague, Christopher Coyne, has written some of the best books on the militarization of police um, and uh, failed efforts at the war uh, militarization. He has a, a new book coming out called Against Militarization. Um, and so you should be looking for that. My colleague, uh, Virgil Store has a great book on do markets corrupt our morals, which is a fantastic deep dive into the debate over those things. And those are all, uh, you know, available, at least, uh, you know, highlights of them through the Mercatus Center. And of course, Mercatus in general is the home of Tyler Cowen. He's a director. And so, you know, his book, Stubborn Attachments, is a fantastic uh, introduction to thinking about modern political thought and, and, and philosophy. But we've had great people involved with us as well, Deirdre McCloskey and, and others. So she did her whole trilogy, you know, with us. I, I don't know if you've had her on the show. Yeah, with yeah you, but, she, she was on yeah, fairly I mean, recently. She's, she's a great spokesperson. She's probably the most important voice for for the kind of uh, liberalism we care about within the economics profession at the moment. So, uh, and, and, you know, our professor besides Senholtz, we also shared another professor, Don Lavoie, who unfortunately passed away. He was one of the original members of the, what was then called the center for study of market processes now evolved into the Mercatus center. And, you know, Don is the, is really, you know, the spirit that animates throughout this book. And in the, in the final chapter, I, spent a lot of time trying to go back over some of Don's writings and draw from them the messages for today. Yeah. And so I, I, I hope that readers will find the collection cohesive and they'll find the arguments compelling 
and that they'll join in trying to figure out how to understand the world and how to change the world. Join the struggle. Yeah, join the struggle. We should do this more. Thanks a lot. Oh, I greatly appreciate it. Thank you very much, Matt. That was amazing. Where can I get more content just like that? It's a great question. You're clearly a discerning consumer of the best content. Make sure to like the video, subscribe, and click the bell. And if you're consuming podcasts, go to Apple, Stitcher, anywhere you get them. I'm in. Kibbe on Liberty, honest conversations with interesting people. Mm-hmm.